0: section thirteen of the roman triumvirates by charles merivale this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela Nagami. chapter six rupture between caesar and the senate part two a few days later at the commencement of december the city was alarmed by a report that caesar's legions were crossing the alps the consuls hastily called the senate together and proposed to summon some cohorts stationed at capua to the defence of the city curio derided their fears asserting that the rumour was untrue it was at least premature but marcellus retorted that prevented as he was from concerting with the supreme council for the safety of the state he would venture to save it by measures of his own he marched solemnly through the city attended by the chiefs of his party and sought pompeius in his residence at alba there he thrust a sword into the imperator's hand and invited him to assume the command of all the forces of the commonwealth then in italy pompeius accepted the charge adding with the pretended moderation which never forsook him if no better expedient can be discovered He declined, however, to make further levies. He refused to recall the legions in the east or the west to the centre of the empire. He was either singularly careless or he still looked to an overt attack on the part of Caesar to justify his assumption of extraordinary powers. The Gallic proconsul had now again quitted the Transalpine province and stationed himself at Ravenna. He was attended there by a single legion only but other battalions were no doubt moving quietly southwards to its support yet it was hard to believe that he meditated any sudden outbreak and possibly marcellus was himself deceived by the vigour of his own stroke curio however who was more in his patron's secrets pretended that the inviolability of his own person was no longer secure protesting against the consul's call to arms and proclaiming that the reign of law was at an end, he suddenly quitted the city still early in December and betook himself to the proconsul's quarters. The people regarded both the one and the other as victims of oligarchical injustice. The political atmosphere was fully charged with electricity. Curio was urgent for action. Caesar still kept his head, waiting and watching for the fit moment with the arrival of the new year quintus cassius and marcus antonius two of his most devoted officers would succeed to the office of tribune another gaius marcellus not less violent than the first and lentulus cruz an uncompromising optimate would become consuls a final collision would inevitably follow he determined that the act of his own hand which should furnish direct occasion for it should be specious and popular he commanded curio to return and lay before the senate and people his offer to surrender at once the transalpine province together with the troops which held it now ten months before the legal expiration of his office retaining only the cisalpine and illyricum with the moderate force of two legions Should these concessions be rejected, he would still be content to lay down his command without reserve, provided that Pompeius, on his part, should do the like. Failing the acceptance of this last condition, he boldly declared that he would come in arms to Rome and avenge his own and what he affirmed to be his country's injuries. The letter containing these proposals was presented to the Senate and the new consuls on the first day of the new year b c 49 the bearer was refused even a hearing but cassius and antonius took care that the people should be informed of them and insisted that caesar's claims should be considered a noisy and confused debate ensued the consuls declared the state in danger and refused all concession to a rebel with arms in his hands the senate ultimately adopted the motion of scipio that unless caesar yielded both army and province before a certain day he should be treated as a public enemy the tribunes interposed their vetoes exclaiming that the people had granted and prolonged his office the people alone could legally withdraw it but no heed was paid to the voice of law or the forms of the constitution the decree was carried by a large majority the tribunes formally protesting and declaring that they were coerced in the exercise of their legitimate functions their opponents retorted by a solemn proclamation of the danger of the state and by inviting the citizens to put on mourning pompeius from his station outside the walls sent some cohorts into the city the consuls were emboldened to act with a high hand they convened the Senate on the 6th of January to determine on the punishment of the refractory tribunes. When it was intimated to these officials that they would be formally expelled from the Assembly, they pretended to disguise themselves and fled along with Curio as if for their lives. In thus leaving the city, they signified that they threw up their outraged and defenceless office for the tribune was forbidden to step outside the walls during his term of office. They were eagerly received in the proconsul's quarters. Caesar could now take up their cause as his own, and the use of force would be doubly justified in the eyes of the people, ever sensitive of the privileges of their traditional protectors. Caesar had suffered a technical wrong, and so had the tribunes also neither of them had perhaps any constitutional means of redress such illegal acts as those of the consuls and senate betrayed a signal defect in the roman polity for which no legitimate remedy had been appointed for which none perhaps was ultimately possible aggrieved as they doubtless were were they morally justified in making an appeal to force such is the question which their countrymen asked themselves both then and afterwards but they could find no satisfactory answer such again is the question which the moderns have repeatedly asked and again with no result the problem is one which has had a deep interest for succeeding generations for the consequences of caesar's bold resolve to vindicate his claims by arms have had a wide effect upon human history which has not even yet ceased to operate sulla and marius and many other public men at rome had acted with equal or greater violence and no one has cared to inquire how far their circumstances excused or justified them but all the world has taken a common interest in criticizing the action of the immortal caesar A full century later, when passions, it may be supposed, had cooled, and the conditions of the problem admitted of calmer consideration, the poet Lucan gives us the final judgment of his own contemporaries. Lucan was a poet, but he had sat at the feet of statesmen and philosophers. He was an ardent enthusiast for liberty, but his notions of liberty were those of a Roman oligarch and the heir of senatorial prejudices the first sentence of his poem paradoxically characterises the civil war as a justifiable outrage us datum sceleri and waiving all subtle technical criticism on the merits of the case he refers to it as a moral necessity such as places it altogether beyond the scope of human judgment the doctrine of the stoics which he had imbibed from his uncle seneca assured him that all mundane things are subject to a natural law of production and decay and that as the frame of the universe itself is doomed to return to chaos so the noblest creations of human genius must run their destined course and finally crumble to their foundations in se magna ruant great things fall by their own bulk and greatness the commonwealth of rome had reached the summit of its triumphs and straightway fate stepped in and claimed her victim nevertheless within the controlling action of this primal law there is room he allows for secondary causes the immediate impulse to revolution was given he says by the division of political power between the three conspiring chiefs and the exclusion of the people from the direction of their own affairs this tyranny disguised by its partition among three equals, must eventually center in one alone, for such colleagues cannot fail to become rivals, and such rivals must at last rush in arms against each other. So had even the rising walls of Rome been moistened with a brother's blood. Crassus, indeed, while he yet lived, had stood like a slender isthmus between encroaching oceans. On his death, no barrier remained to part the contending claims of Caesar and Pompeius. Julia carried to her early grave the last bond of union between two alien houses. She, who, like the Sabine women of ancient legend, might have flung herself between the husband and the father, and dashed away their swords and joined their hands together. Thenceforth there was only jealousy on the one side and ambition on the other pompeius could not brook an equal nor caesar a superior betwixt them who should decide the right the gods pronounced in favor of the victor but cato had concurred with the vanquished but the contending champions came into the field on no equal terms the one was old in years and content with the applause of the forum and the theatre the other ardent and active Flushed with recent victories and eager for power. The one had long adopted the garb of peace, the other had not yet sheathed the sword which had subdued the Gauls. Pompeius stood like the veteran oak, conspicuous and alone in some fertile field, crowned with the trophies of many triumphs, majestic in its decay, and revered for its ancient associations. Caesar fell upon it like the lightning of Jupiter which spares nothing venerable nothing holy neither the monarch of the forest nor the temples of its own divinity such he continues were the causes of enmity between the illustrious rivals but the seeds of discord lay far deeper and pervaded the commonwealth itself with the fatal germs of dissolution luxury in the wealth of cities and empires amassed in a few hands had transformed the equal citizens of rome into a group of rival tyrants who cajoled or trampled upon a herd of paupers the thirst of gold and the ruthless means by which it had been gratified had blunted all sense of public or private honor no eminence satisfied the ambitious aspirant but one which towered above the laws no power contented him But such as defied the commonwealth itself. The decrees of the Senate, the resolutions of the people, were alike coerced or disregarded. Consuls and tribunes vied with one another in violating the restrictions imposed on them by the laws. Every honour was bought with money or extorted by force. The citizens set their own price on their favour, while the recurring elections of the field of Mars brought the republic year by year to the verge of anarchy and dissolution the men most powerful in the camp most influential in the comitia were plunged in the deepest embarrassments from which war alone could extricate them the usurers the last element of national stability trembled for their preposterous ventures while spendthrifts and bankrupts invoked with all their vows the chances of universal confusion such is the view which lucan took such are nearly the words in which he explained it of the causes of the great civil war his compliment to the despotism of nero as the sole means of restoring order may be suspected of hypocrisy and adulation nevertheless the fact is indisputable that everything had been long tending to monarchy and that for the last eighty years the decay of ancient ideas, the obliteration of republican manners, and the disorganization of government had combined to render such a consummation inevitable. The tribunate of the younger Gracchus, the consulships of Marius and Cinna, the dictatorship of Sulla, the wide and protracted commands of Pompeius and Caesar, had been in fact no other than temporary autocracies the nobles were content that the state should be ruled by a series of extraordinary commissions of their own appointment the people would have willingly merged all their rights of self-government and the paramount authority of a sovereign pledged to subject the nobles to them the readers and thinkers of the day a small but increasing class withdrew more and more from the turbid sphere of political action atticus who piqued himself on his practical shrewdness Professed neutrality on all questions of state, and lived in amity with three generations of public men of every faction. Cato and his nephew Brutus, who strove to mould their public conduct by the precepts of the highest philosophy, only proved that virtue and honour could no longer live untainted in the atmosphere of the Roman free state. The republic to which Cicero devoted his faith and love. Was the republic of antiquity, the republic of his own imagination, the republic of the good and wise. Nor are indications wanting that even he admitted that liberty is never more amiable than when she yields to the mild authority of a constitutional sovereign. But few men were cautious and temperate as he was. The bold and free spoken openly proclaimed with Curio that the republic was a vain chimera or called it with Caesar himself, a mere name devoid of substance or reality. The fact of such a movement of men's spirits in the direction of royalty is one of the great lessons we learn from the history of the Roman commonwealth, the history of a vigorous nation governed by a close aristocracy of birth, which asserted for itself the full power and privileges of government and slowly and with reluctance conceded a share in them to the popular class below it the people were driven by want and jealousy to support the ambition of any one among the ruling class who would take them and their interests under his protection their minds became gradually prepared for the abandonment of their personal freedom all the specious arguments in favour of monarchy obtained more and more a hearing with them And writers or speakers soon arose who could place them in a light sufficiently effective. Such a writer is one whose letters addressed to Caesar go under the name of Sallust the Historian. This tract does not indeed deserve to be considered genuine, but it seems to belong at least to the period before us, and to speak the common sentiments of the public men of the day who despaired of the free state. In these letters, caesar is invited to assume the government as the only man who can heal the public disorders save rome exclaims the orator for if rome perishes the world will perish with her in blood and ruin vast is the task imposed upon you the genuine free people is annihilated there remains only a corrupt populace without unity of sentiment or action infuse a new element into the mass introduce numbers of foreign citizens, found colonies and restore cities, crush the faction of tyrants at home, and extend far the roots of the Roman community abroad. Exact military service of all alike, not of Romans or Latins only, but limit the term of it. Let the magistrates be chosen for their virtues, not merely for their riches." to entrust to the citizens themselves the working of this reformed polity would be useless but the impartial eye of a sovereign ruler may watch securely over it and neither fear nor favour nor interest must be suffered to impede its operation this exposition of the views of intelligent public men was supported by the mass of the middle classes it was sanctioned by many from disgust at the corruption of the optimates nevertheless the ruling powers would doubtless struggle for their ascendancy the revolution in view must be a work of force and of manifold perils the atrocities of sulla had not been forgotten again and again the nobles would surely resort to violence and bloodshed even at this moment it was reported that the government had prepared a list of forty senators and multitudes of lesser quality for proscription but caesar had already gained a name for personal clemency and his success was anticipated as a pledge of public and private security the sentiment in favour of caesar's aggression received no doubt further impulse from the partiality of the provincials to the foreign subjects of the republic monarchy was for the most part more familiar than the forms of a commonwealth and to the multitudes of greek and asiatics who thronged the streets of Rome. The populace lent an attentive ear when they dilated on the pomp and splendor of Oriental royalty. But Caesar himself was personally beloved by the very people whom he had conquered, as well as by multitudes who had never seen him. The nephew of Marius had carried the traditions of his party further than any of his predecessors. The incorporation of the Italians was not enough for him. He had advanced the cispidane gauls to the franchise also he was evidently prepared to carry the same policy onward the gauls beyond the po and even beyond the alps might expect similar favour at his hands he had secured the independence of certain communities in greece he had attached to himself some of the potentates of asia the whole nation of the jews very popular at this period in rome loved him as much as they hated his opponent caesar had lavished vast sums in the decoration of provincial cities both in the east and west foreign nations might well imagine that the conqueror and organizer of gaul was preparing to mould the whole roman world into a mighty monarchy under equal laws to be a second alexander had been the dream of many kings and conquerors the hour and the man might seem to have at last arrived for its realisation would that i had seen exclaims the french historian michelet that man of pale and sallow countenance faded before its time by the dissipations of the city the delicate and epileptic caesar marching at the head of his legions beneath the rainy skies of gaul swimming across our Gaulish rivers, or riding on horseback between the litters which bore his exhausted secretaries, dictating four or six letters at a time—seven, says Pliny, when he had no other business in hand—agitating Rome from the depths of Belgium, exterminating on his way two millions of enemies, subduing in ten years the continent to the Rhine and the northern ocean. Such was the Caesar, who had quitted the city for his province— Such had been his career during his long but voluntary exile, and now at last he was returning, his conquests completed, his dangers overcome, his bodily vigour strengthened, no doubt, by the toils he had endured, his mental powers strained to the utmost, his fame established, his character purged in the eyes of his countrymen by merits and sufferings, all rome prepared to bow before the genius which was now shining forth and eclipsing the long faded glories of every other candidate for their worship caesar exerted a moral and intellectual force which kindled to flame the imagination of his countrymen great as he was transcendently great among the leaders of the people great as a speaker great as a writer great as a statesman greatest of all as a military chieftain the excitable temperament of the romans was already prone to admire him as greater than he was or ever could be end of section thirteen